0: Uh, okay, maybe we could speed this thing along. If I speak for everyone when I say I was blown away by this paper, it really, it's not often at this stage of my career where I'm blown away by an article, and this is one. I suspect everyone will premise their remarks with that point. Maybe let's just stipulate it. Those of you who thought it was terrible, go ahead and say that. But
1: the rest I think everybody should be.
0: Um, fair enough. Um, We've got enough time. So my question is... I, I, as I was reading this, I was curious whether there are any implications for the law of federalism in your story, because you know, it may be that what you're telling us, maybe the Committee on Detail didn't think that they were defying the vote of the convention not to enumerate the powers of the federal government vis-a-vis the states maybe all these powers that are being listed in Article 1 are being listed for separation of powers purposes, to delineate which of the royal prerogatives belong to the president and which belong to the the legislative branch. And they didn't actually, we view that now as a pure issue of federalism virtually, but perhaps that's anachronistic to see it that way. And I'm just curious whether you think your story has any implications for
2: federalism. John. So ditto on what Tom said. Uh, Uh, It's an extraordinary paper. I wanted to make a couple friendly suggestions and then ask a question that um, goes to an issue that I just don't understand where you stand on. The friendly suggestion, number one, is that um, I think you're absolutely right that the drafting history is crucial. I think it's worth recalling or thinking about the fact that the two men who do most of the drafting are uh, Wilson and Morris. They're both Pennsylvanians, but for your purposes, they're both Robert Morris's close colleagues during the confederation period and I, I think that robert morris belongs in your story because he's really the person who's um, carrying into effect executive powers vested in the continental congress during this period much to the chagrin of many um, of his opponents uh, i think it has to be the case that when they're very carefully as you say doing the drafting for the committees they have in mind the Robert Morris model of what executive power might mean under this government. So that's just a suggestion where I think it would add to your story. The second is that there's one provision in the Committee of Details draft that I think is worth discussing in your paper, which is Article 2. So you have the three vesting clauses in the Committee of Detail draft, and then you show what happens to them in the Committee of Style draft. But the preceding article in the Committee of Detail draft, Article 2, said the government of the United States shall consist of supreme legislative, executive, and judicial powers. And that was the predicate for the way the vesting clauses were drafted in that draft. So when the definite article, the legislative power, the executive power and so forth was used, it it was picking back what had already been stated to be the powers of the government as a whole. And the Committee of Style takes that out. And I think that is one reason, perhaps, why the final version of the vesting clauses look the way they do? There's no longer the piece of text to which they refer back. And I think it's worth thinking about. The, very briefly, the substantive um, critical question is I just don't understand what, on your view, the necessary proper clause does in terms of horizontal, horizontal control that Congress um, uh, uh, can uh, apply to the other departments. And I guess the way to put the question is, on your view, is the president an officer of the United States therefore coming under the sweep of that very last part of the Necessary and Proper Clause and is the executive department as a whole, a department of the government of the United States therefore also coming under that clause. There are times when it seems to me you're using a kind of a narrower construal of what that last part of the Necessary and Proper Clause might be doing because you're thinking of uh, sub-executive departments that Congress creates. And perhaps you're assuming that the president himself doesn't come under the control of that, uh, that part of the clause. But if he does, then I do think your story has to change a it little, a little bit, or at le- you at least have to kind of tell us why there isn't tremendous control vested in Congress over how all of the powers that are vested in the president are carried into execution. Because Congress is expressly given the power to make all laws necessary and proper to carry into effect all of those powers.
3: Um, Yeah. Well, I happily join Tom's stipulation and uh, not not just because there's a lot of stuff in here I agree with, uh, but it's all very nicely put together, so thank you for that. And I have a uh, methodological question, um, which which is um, what is the relevance of much of this for uh, a textualist or original meaning interpretation? Um, or, to put it perhaps a little bit more sharply, um, is this all just legislative history? Uh, which of course, uh, Scalia disdained at least in statutory interpretation and uh, seemed to have at least a uh, ambivalent view of in, uh, in constitutional interpretation, rarely citing it himself. And of course, um, in the classic kesevan paulson article they say, and I agree, um, that uh, notwithstanding some skepticism of original meaning people that uh, that we should be able to look at uh, drafting history um, to understand the meaning of particular words in the way that uh, educated people at the time used them. Um, but it, it seems to me that your article goes quite a bit beyond that uh, in in talking about um, the intentions and and motivations and, and feelings of um, particular drafters. Um, and so uh, my, my question is... Uh, from a perspective of original meaning, um, how much of that can we take on uh, in, in trying to determine the original meaning? Um, or, or, in fact, is this um, a partial return to uh, a theory of, uh, of original intent uh, rather than original meaning? Okay,
4: those are
5: three questions. Like to... Um. Well, I really disagree with this blown-away business. Um, uh, Tom, I, this is a, that's a great question. You may be right. I, I, so I, I'm inclined to think that the Committee of Details' uh, audacious decision to enumerate, maybe they had two reasons and not just one. Uh, I, ca- I can't think that the federalism half of this is completely absent I mean when Rutledge himself makes a a motion on I believe it was July 16th to get to appoint a committee to enumerate the powers and, and this is in the context clearly of a federalism discussion and that's voted down and then just a few days later they create the committee and they do it anyway you know that's got to have been you know an intentional thing now it is true that I think that the, the enumeration has been the implications for separation of powers has been have been almost entirely ignored. So, um, thank you for those excellent uh, suggestions, John. Necessary and proper. You're absolutely right. I need to I need to think about that and write about that. Uh, whether or not the president is an officer, I would have thought he was uh, until Seth Barrett Tillman did his uh, work, and now I just don't know. Um, but, but that the executive is a department, I think is almost certainly the answer to that is yes. They refer to to the departments, I mean, you know, so, so often as including, as meaning the three, what we would call the three branches. And so, I, so I, I just, I have to do some thinking about necessary and proper. Uh, and in particular, when I say that the, well, so sub, two subdivisions here. One is, one answer to the, this, the Scalia answer is, uh, Congress can only do things that are proper, and proper is a reference to the, the, the overall, the, the remainder of the constitutional structure. I'm not sure if that is my position I'm a little skeptical that of the treating those two words necessary and proper as being uh, that separate. A uh, second thing is I particularly I w- I even rereading my paper in preparation for this morning I was aware that I'm not sure that I have a theory of whether nece- whether the necessary and proper clause has makes sense in terms of being in the the idea that. The, these defeasible de- powers of the President under the vesting clause, all the clear examples are enumerated powers, necessary and proper. I just haven't thought that through. So you've pointed to uh, you know a, a really important gap. Uh, Mike Ramsey, um, you know I've never, I've never bought into this uh, the original meaning, original intent dichotomy. I've never thought that it was a dichotomy. Um, I know that makes me a heretic. Uh, that isn't to say that I don't think that there's something to it, but it's not a dichotomy. You can't tell the difference, and and what um, and in many cases you can't tell the difference. I take it this is one of Rand, the points that Randy's paper um, uh, makes: is that maybe we've exaggerated this. Uh, but in so, what kind? Am I an original meaning person? I think I am. But what I have always thought was the most important thing in understanding the original meaning is not what's being said now at the time, it's where the ideas came from. Uh, it's So when they have a long history, for example, of, of thinking about the removal power, and then we, I think we should understand the Constitution in light of that Thinking, it's not just this, not just the decision of 1789 to which I don't even refer, right? It has to do with what, how the way in which re, uh, appointment and removal uh, function to subvert the balance of power in the Hanoverian Constitution. That's what really, that's what they were thinking about, and I think that's what. My, so my method here is. I like to think of, of of originalism as being more like intellectual history than than it is like linguistics uh, that <laughs> uh, What we want to know is uh, is where do these ideas come from
4: and Larry would be gratified to know that I think he has another at least partial member in his small in his small group. okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's go to the next threesome. Uh, John McGinnis, uh, Richard Primus, and Ilya Soma. Uh, my
6: question is about uh, removal, because on the basis of what's uh, presented in the paper, I'm not quite sure why removal would go to matters of policy. I think you make a very powerful case that on matters of law from the Take Care Clause, president has to have the power of removal. You also make a very powerful case that it can't be multiple uh, executives, but that's not quite the case if you gave the president the power of removal over any um, uh, actions they thought were illegal but permitted uh, policy um, discretion within the, uh, his agents. That wouldn't seem to violate either of those two uh, structures. And you might also think that that would be part of the necessary and proper clause to create officers. The reason I'm sort of interested in this is it's obviously a topical question. If, to make it concrete, if the President Trump wants to fire the head of the CFBB, one way would be just to say, I, you're fired. I can, <laughs> I can do it for any reason at all. Another way would be to look at his actions and say, well, I disagree a lot with you on the law. Therefore, I can fire you. I think your, your um, arguments are very powerful on the second way of getting rid of the head of the CFB. They seem less strong to me on the first way.
7: Richard. Um, Michael, I incorporate by reference Tom's praise for the paper, and then um, I want to build out his substantive uh, question a little bit. And I'm not sure that what I'm going to say calls for a separate response for, from you, having already said to Tom, I need to think about that more generally. But as you do that, let me throw out a couple more possible pieces of the puzzle. Um, I really like the way this paper shows the enumeration of Article One, Section 8 as doing work along the separation of power's dimension. I think that's true and important and vastly neglected. So th- these two thoughts are, are then the ones that come from it. First. When people make the standard criticism of post-wickard doctrine on Congress's enumerated powers that goes, um, this cannot make sense because it means that the enumeration of powers in the Constitution is doing no work. That's on your account false. The enumeration is doing a ton of work. It's doing a ton of work on the separation of powers dimension. right? That doesn't mean that there isn't work that it's supposed to be doing also on the federalism dimension, right? that's not being done. But at the very least, it substantially moderates that criticism, right? and it needs, the, it needs to be formulated more carefully. In, the same, in a similar vein, it, it makes me think about the actual text of the vesting clause. Right? Um, uh, the, the, there's a standard reading, and you use it in the article, that says the wording of the vesting clause, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in Congress of the United States, means that the Congress can execute the enumerated powers herein mentioned and none other. The the propositional content of the clause doesn't say that, of course. The propositional content of the clause, Uh if you wanted a clause that would straightforwardly make that proposition, it would say, only the legislative powers here and granted are vested in a, a Congress of the United States. Not all legislative powers here and granted are vested in Congress of the United States. All legislative powers are grant, are here and granted are vested in Congress of the United States it leaves open the possibility that there are also things that Congress can do that are not that, right? Congress has all of these things and maybe also something else. That being, and, and then you might say, the point of this uh, vesting clause, to the extent that it has separate meaning, it means something <coughs> different from what the other vesting clauses means, what it points to is something emphatic. We've carved off these things. right? They're vested only here and not somewhere else. Right? I'm not trying to establish that either of those things is true. Right? I'm not trying to you know, persuade you of radical shifts in uh, how you ought to think about Article I, Section 8. I'm just raising these two points that seem to be possibilities also raised by your analysis, such that when you think about the bigger (coughs) question Tom raises, right, how much of this is federalism and how much of this is separation of powers, that they're also in your field of vision.
8: uh, so I, I join with the praise of just about everybody else about the incredible depth and insight and amount okay, of material that we through. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've heard it um, enough. So
8: proceeding to a slightly more critical comment, which builds, I think, on Michael Ramsey's question, I think there's tremendous value in just getting this history out, figuring out how the sausage was made. I think it's much more controversial, what are the implications of this for how courts or other people should interpret the Constitution. In here, I think there are sort of some implicit methodological choices that are being made, at least in the paper, uh, as currently structured, that are at least open to question. One is it does seem to emphasize very heavily what could be called original intent over original meaning and moreover it's secret intent that wasn't available to for the most part to the ratifiers and the general public at the time (laughs) to the extent that it's based not on what the various committees uh, at the Constitutional Convention did, but rather on this general intellectual history. It also takes an implicit uh, position on this question that was discussed yesterday between John McGinnis and Randy and Evan about whether it should be, whether we should in- think of original meaning as, original meaning is understood by the experts and lawyers or original meaning is understood by ordinary, reasonable readers or whatnot. And this seemed to lean very heavily on the expert side, not just to, to get this stuff and think of it in these terms. The reader would have to not only be knowledgeable about the legal doctrine as of 1787, but also knowledge about a great deal of British uh, political and institutional history and the like. And maybe it's reasonable to say that the reader that you have in mind for the original meaning is a reader with that depth of knowledge that follows sort of Gary Watson's model of you know as, as, as I think he put it a you know an extraordinarily knowledgeable fellow who really knows everything that's you know this potentially relevant but it is nonetheless uh, at, 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 a, at a somewhat extreme end of this continuum now it could be that you could support the same types of conclusions by looking at what the ratifiers thought or by looking at sort of a reasonable reader who hadn't gotten to quite this depth of knowledge what that person would think, uh, but I think there are methodological choices being made here at least implicitly and you know, my thought might be either say, you know, I acknowledge I've made those choices, but I think they're the right choices or alternatively to <coughs> sort of broaden perhaps the defense of this to say that even if you make different choices, even if you assume a less knowledgeable reader or even if you assume original meaning rather than original intent, you still come out with similar conclusions. And you know, I'm not sure which of those paths is best. And I'm not all, even at all, saying that if you adopt a different methodology, you might reach different conclusions. You might reach all, all or almost all the same ones. But I think these are questions that you know may, may be worth thinking about. Uh, at the very least, sort of a, a, a just acknowledging that there is, you know, methodological choices here, and that it's possible to make some of them the other way, or at least some people might want to do that.
4: Okay, another three. So.
8: Um, so,
5: removal. Um, John, what you say, I think makes a great deal of sense within its domain, but I think that if if you take the view that the president the president's take care power to remove is limited to sort of illegal acts and not to matter not to disagreements over policy, we have now created a Uh, uh, an executive to which Tsai really can object. I mean, I'm referring to Tsai because Tsai believes that the executive power is vested in the president. And I think it becomes an unrecognizably non, it it just isn't unitary at all at that point. Uh, Total, uh, all my versions are one. It just becomes, uh, it becomes ministerial government and maybe I should add a point about this, but our, our framers were actually much more opposed to ministerial government than they were to royal government. Uh, if, you, if you read the polemics of the day, uh, you know, the, the evil minister, and, and some of this is driven by the formalism of British constitutionalism, but I actually do think that many people believe that the system that uh, had evolved in Britain where you have people like, like Walpole and North uh, running the show who don't have who are neither representatives of the people nor have any kind of monarchical legitimacy is the worst possible world. I, I really don't think they wanted to be in that world. Um, so, <laughs> Richard, some interesting points for me for me to uh, to think about. Uh, you're certainly right <coughs> that I may be weakening the attack on Wickard. Um, Maybe that's just collateral damage I have to put up with, I don't know. Uh, I don't agree with you, though, about, uh, about the vesting clause of Article One, where you say that it would have been different if they had, why didn't they say only the powers granted? Because I believe that it's a premise of the Constitution that every exercise of power has to, have, has to derive from a grant of authority somewhere. And so it is true that the first sentence doesn't deny Congress might have power coming from somewhere else, but there is no somewhere else, and so they don't have any of that, uh, of that power. Now, it may, and also there's the Tenth Amendment where to, to make things really clear, uh, they said, and, and by the way, we're, we're going to write it in. We're going to write in the negative and not, not just a, a count on it. Um, uh, on Ilya re-raises the methodology point, and um, and he he, he suggests, yeah, yeah, maybe I do err on the expert rather than the populist side of the original <coughs> meaning. I don't. I mean that makes a certain amount of sense to me. The Constitution is written in, in language which I think uh, was primarily directed to lawyers, um, but uh, I really don't. I I guess that's just a fact rather than a criticism, I'm not sure. Um, But when you suggest that I'm being guided by, that I'm in the original intent camp and and guided by even secret intent, I have to push back against that. I don't think there's anything secret (coughs) about any of what I talk about. Uh, One of the great things about those committees where we have no idea what they were thinking is that all of the inferences about why they did what they did is based upon what they did. This could not be more public. This is absolutely the most public uh, uh, thing you can have. But it also makes me think, um, who was it yesterday made the distinction? I think it may be Mitch Berman who makes a distinction that that there really are three different things. There's intent, there's purpose, and then there is... uh, Meaning? Uh, is that your distinction, Mitch?
7: There's the communicative
8: content of the text.
3: There's the legal intention for which it's enacted. That is, what try to change in the law you're trying to produce by means of enacting the, the legislation. There are the worldly purposes, what, trying, what changes in the world you're trying to causally produce by means of changing the law. And then there are the motives, what reasons oh. you might have for trying to produce those changes in the world.
5: So um, I believe that when, when I hear the word intent, I'm thinking especially secret intent, we're talking motives. I don't think that this is about motives. I think it's about purposes, though, and, and I just like to wrap myself in Mitch's elegant language with respect to uh, uh, to that, and, and maybe this is why the, the meaning versus intent a dichotomy just doesn't quite ring true, is that there's a, there are actually several different things going uh, on with this. I I really join the crowd with respect to the view that motivations don't matter. Uh, And then beyond that, we'll take three more.
4: Okay. I will point out that we have now heard from two, I think John's Term yesterday, but like, I kind of like triumvirates or something. But we have four more. So, um, <laughs> so again, keep that in mind. you know, got well, five uh, minutes. Right. So, um, the next group is Bernadette, Randy, and Guy. Okay.
9: So, I'll uh, try to tamp down my desire to extol the paper. Um, and I guess I want to pick up a bit on this idea of a non defeasible um, prerogative. Um, I, I would say that I actually really love the framework of prerogative power, um, but I am still left unsure about why you think that simply constitutionalizing the prerogative makes it indefeasible and I guess I want to bring this back into conversation with the liquidation discussion from yesterday and to say you know what if I there were some form of practice and repeated practice um, after the founding we can argue about how long it might be that suggested uh, a redistribution of one of the prerog- of the powers that you consider prerogative powers in article two um, and so I'm just going to give a kind of counterfactual example that didn't actually happen but what if um, you know one of your examples is the pardon power but what if Congress had passed a lot of amnesties after uh, you know in some 30 year period after the founding um, would then uh, Klein and other cases in the late 19th century do you think have been inevitable to come out the same way, or might the pardon power have been construed differently um, as a more limited uh, set of powers that didn't include amnesty? So I guess it's really a question about the relation between something like liquidation and this uh, presumption of an indefeasible prerogative.
10: I, w- I wanted to respond to, my- not why I got in the queue, but I wanted to respond to Michael about the question about interpretation, construction, and related to, and this I think we're on, on the same page, Mike. If Evan and I are right, uh, that interpretation and construction are two distinct activities, but if in, in construction is supposed to be done according to the spirit of the Constitution, which is based on purpose but not motive, then and sometimes that enriches the public meaning of the, constitu- of the text and sometimes it goes beyond that to do what we're calling construction, uh, then there's a, it's a continuum of activities and as long, it's all, as, long as it's all being done well, then you don't really need to point to whether you're in this category or that category in any kind of scrupulous way as as long as it's being done okay. That's one of the virtues, I think, of our approach. My question was actually asked by Tom and then amped up by Richard. So let me just uh, emphasize again, I think you need a section of this paper on exactly this problem, um, which has to do with the function of the enumeration. Your list is of what you think are prerogative powers that are, have separation of powers uh, implications is almost the entire list of Article 1, Section 8. I went through and I identified those which are not on that list. And it's simply the domestic and Indian commerce clause, the bankruptcy clause, the uh, federal governance of the District of Columbia as well as federal properties and the necessary and proper clause. That's all that's not on the list of separation of powers and those other ones are allocations between state and federal powers so the domestic and Indian commerce power is a federalism provision and the bankruptcy clause is a federalism provision and that just leaves the gov- federal government acting like a state in its own territories which is its own sort of sui generis provision and at that point might not you be giving extremely strong uh, or at least you are, whether you're giving strong support or not your argument can then be used to argue there is an inherent power in the federal government that's the it's the hamiltonian inherent powers theory and the only function of the enumeration is to allocate to do these allocations mostly for separation of powers and in a few rare instances for federalism purposes and that's it that's the entire function of enumeration and the necessary and proper clause as john would have it does all the work at that point uh... and you basically have a government of general powers that's allocated this way and that's. That's the upshot of your argument. So if you don't believe that's true, I think you need to address why that's not true. Guy. I'll keep it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought the paper was great. Um, (laughs) So I'll keep this very quick. Um, So you were speaking about the genesis of ideas and trying to figure these things out. And one thing that I noticed was perhaps missing um, is that that you base so much of this on the English monarch. What about the Roman dictator? Um, I know Rossiter speaks a lot about this, uh, connecting those two. When we go into, and the only reason I'm bringing this up is because that seems to give much more sweeping powers. Obviously, they didn't want anything that strong. But um, Federalist 70 specifically, um, when Hamilton goes in, all of his examples are the dictatorship. Um, and, and some would say, oh, you know, he points that out to be too strong, but then he spends the rest of the time saying, well, we need this power, right? And so I wondered if that would maybe buttress sort of what you're saying and, and give it a little strength. And if not, Why wouldn't it? And and is just this whole Roman dictatorship thing thrown out? Um, And and that's sort of just my question. so.
5: So, Bernie, the way I look at this is that liquidation, repeated practice can elucidate the meaning of the Constitution, but can't change it. And so... I don't see I don't think that liquidation is kind of a backdoor means of allow of defeasing executive powers if they're there. It may well be that there are interpretive questions about whether powers are there or are they defeasible or what exactly do they mean? Does the president's power pardon power preclude an amnesty authority on the part of Congress? Uh, and it may well be that that's an open question that is subject to liquidation. But I would say, if if so, it isn't defeasing a power. It's just defining what the limit of the power uh, is. Uh, okay, Randy, I do need a section on that. I do not think what you said follows. Uh, and I w- probably want to talk to you a little bit more uh, aside to make sure that I fully appreciate the force of what it is that I'm going to be explaining isn't... Uh, uh, is not the case. Uh, I don't see the vesting clause as giving the president powers to execute everything on earth. Like you know, he hasn't given any executive powers with respect to San Marino. It's just the United States, and it's just the federal government. And so, I think the federal, all the federalism implications of of uh, <coughs> Article One, Section Eight, whatever they may be, it seems to me. Continue to carry over, uh, and so I don't think we have a general government. But we should talk. I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying, because I certainly wouldn't want to lend uh, credence to to that to the idea that it's a general government. Have to think about Roman dictators, uh, and in connection with that, I just add that uh, Rutledge. Uh, was dictator of South Carolina for I think two years literally that was his title and and because well this is this is not this is because the the British landed in South Carolina the legislature couldn't meet uh, the pla- the place was in complete turmoil you could not have a Republican form of government and he performed I gather admirably there is no good biography of rutledge so you know i have to pick this up you know I, i'm not a historian i'm just a con law guy but you know so i have to do a little bit of work myself uh but this i wonder because if anybody would would resonate to the word dictator you know it would be the chair of the committee of detail who had been one and, by the way, <laughs> just like Cincinnati, as soon as the crisis went, he, he laid down his powers. He was really kind of a model of, uh, of emergency power.
4: Uh, okay. Thank you. Um, our next solution is uh, Will, Mike, uh, Rappaport, and Laurie. <coughs>
11: Uh, I was going to ask you questions about the necessary and proper clause that I think everybody's already asked repeatedly. So instead, uh, I guess this is maybe another version of Randy's question. So the tax power is enumerated in Article 1. And we could think of a separation of powers reason for that or a federalism reason for that. We could think that if there was no enumerated tax power, there would be no tax power in the federal government because The Articles of Confederation lacked such a power, and it was a great power and needed to be laid out specifically, so it would remain only with the states. Or we could fear that if there was no tax power given to Congress, that would be suggesting that they were going back on the British constitutional settlement and giving the tax power to the federal executive. So the failure to enumerate it could result in it defaulting to the executive, or could result in it defaulting not to the national government at all. And I take it that's going to be true for a lot of the enumerated powers, that's part of the... Play between the federalism and separation of powers so with them generally and with the tax power specifically how do we know whether it's enumerated to take it away from the executive or it's enumerated to take it away from the states
1: yeah um, <coughs> like everyone I, I very much like the paper um, but uh, and I read a lot of the conclusions but i've always sort of had a different way of getting to the some of them and let's just talk about removal and take care for a second so i've always thought of removal as coming from the vesting power in the sense that the president has the control over executive power and needs to be able <coughs> to to exercise that control he gets removal from that now you see it much more as in the take care clause and i guess i've always just thought both historically and textually, uh, that that clause basically says the president's gotta, given his powers, make sure that the laws are faithfully executed, not that he gets powers in order to do that. Um, now, the, the reason why it's not a problem is if he has removal from the vesting clause, the take care clause then allows him to remove people and so the extent of his powers actually includes the power to remove from the vesting clause and he can use then take care as an obligation but if you wanna view the removal powers coming from the take care clause of course you then got the problem that John suggested about policy. Um, So I guess I'm just sort of wondering um, what is it that compels me to or what is it that really supports reading the take care clause that way, given that the text seems to cut in the opposite direction, I guess, to, to my way of thinking about it.
12: Laurie? Right. Yeah, uh, a couple of quick points. On the enumeration and the extent to which there could be separation of powers implications playing in there, the, hi- the early history of it's all just federalism, right? It's, it's the New Jersey plan. Virginia plan doesn't have it. The New Jersey plan has it. Madison, Wilson are very clear, it's not going to work. Why are they saying it's not going to work? It's not going to work as a federalism device. It's not going to work as a way to divide power between the nation and the states. It's not practical. They say it's difficult to do in ways that are all about federalism, I think. So I think you've, in, in the early roots of that, you would, you would see enumeration as really just a federalism thing. And then on, on your... I think your, your view gets great support from the um, founders' fear, as you've said, of um, a dictator coming out of the legislature which I think there's a, a sort of a, a pre-British historic story influencing the founders there insofar as Montesquieu is drawing his concern about that phenomenon from Bolingbroke's hostility to Walpole, right? The, Montesquieu visits England for two years in a period where Walpole is just starting to create this phenomenon of a faction leader in the legislature being chosen by the monarch, the separate monarch, to be, in fact, the exerciser of all the executive prerogatives. So this one person is effectively controlling what legislation gets made and what executive actions get taken. And Bullingbrook and Walpole have been rivals ever since Eton, and Bullingbrook is very hostile to the fact that Walpole, his old rival, is getting this kind of power and sees this as an incredible threat. Montesquieu visits him, they're old friends from France, and gives this account in the, in abstract fashion as if it's inherently a horror to have this prime minister phenomenon. Where I think he's very influenced by the personal circumstances of those relationships, and the founders in turn are influenced by that, as if, uh, as if this is necessarily a terrible thing.
5: Um so uh which is it? Is it the enumeration for federalism and for states? Uh Lori I think I endorse Lori's answer to that. I think it is mo- mostly federalism, but that it has a it has a separation of powers component too. It's kinda like cert's. Uh, and I think what you say, Laurie, Lori, I wanna work in i want to do work in a little bit more about the ministry and the and the Walpolean issue i mean i'm i think the polemics of the of the late 18th century are quite clearly in the bolingbrokean and cato's letterian camp in which this uh this new monster is is uh is despised and that and i do think that's related now the Constitution so effectively kills the Walpole model by the simple device of saying that no member of Congress can hold an office. Uh, maybe an underappreciated clause, because it, but it does eliminate this entire possible uh, uh, regime. Um. Oh, m- we probably can go back and forth about removal. I, as you know from the paper, I consider the absence of an express removal provision for removal is the greatest puzzle. I just can't. I don't have a theory for why they didn't just tell us rather than forcing forcing us to do these these inferences. Uh, uh, t- but but uh, two things about why I pr- I tend to think it's primarily a take-care issue rather than a vesting clause issue. Uh, first, if it is a vesting clause issue, it's because removal is an, an, is an executive power. It isn't because it's needed in order to exercise power, because it is an executive power. And that does mean, uh, a, may be, maybe this isn't the end of the world, but I do think that means the president can fire everybody. Uh, I mean so the, there's no possibility of uh, even uh, having a civil service with respect to uh, you know to g s thirteens so that's one point maybe that's not a bad thing, but it is a little bit more revolutionary. I tend by and large to gravitate maybe this is because of uh, of liquidation, but I tend a little bit to gravitate toward not things that aren't quite so revolutionary. The other point is that if I'm right that uh that the vesting clause powers are defeasible by enumerated powers of Congress, then, then that means uh, the Congress is free to, uh, uh, to 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 take it away, which uh, I, seems wrong to me.
4: And will uh, see. Well, I don't mm-hmm. know you, let's see. well um, we have two minutes left, and uh, <laughs> five people still on the list. So I'm going to temporarily assume dictatorial powers and say, for those five people, if you can make your point in, like, say, 45 seconds, we'll just let you, let you do that. Maybe you can't, in which case we'll just, sorry, you'll apologize. But, um, but hopefully at least you can say something that Michael might be able to, uh, to, to appreciate, even if he doesn't have a chance to respond to it. So we have Brian, Larry Solom, Richard Ray,
10: Evan Burnick, and Chris Green.
1: Mine's really narrow. I I, I like one thing
10: about the paper I really like is you take on the Jackson framework, the sacrosanct three-part Youngstown, and i was just curious if you happen to go back and look carefully when you were looking at that at Justice Black's opinion, which is after all the opinion of the court, and just like you said, why do we need this ambiguous second category? Well, Justice Black eliminated that when he really has a two-part framework. So as a fan of Hugo Black, there might be some resonance there with what you're arguing.
1: Larry, do you have a quick point Yes, yes. on indefeasible supervisory <coughs> authority, uh, you might want to say more about the peculiar structure of the opinions writing clause, which is limited to principal officers, which would seem to duplicate the general supervisory authority, right? And I just I just think that there's more to be said there. There, there are implications that can be drawn from that part of the text that are not explored.
11: Uh, uh, at risk of being a self-parody, a uh, quick question on the oath. Uh, the... Uh, uh, the, there is a presidential oath whereby the president is obligated to uh, promise a faith to faithfully execute the laws. Is that doing the personal work, whereas the take care clause is doing the supervisory work?
1: Uh, Emma. I? I'm interested in how, if at all, fiduciary law fits into your understanding of Article 2, particularly your understanding of the take care clause. Um, By the time of the framing of substantial body of English administrative law governing delegations of power, one of the most basic principles of fiduciary law is that a grant of discretionary authority has to be exercised reasonably. Take care clause is arguably the most obvious case in the entire Constitution for drawing upon fiduciary law principles. Faithful execution, faithfully, uh, due care, all of these concepts are throughout 18th century fiduciary law. So I struggle with what I take to be your claim that faithful execution isn't reviewable. If it's not, how does that principle of reasonableness get enforced? Chris?
4: Um, so uh, I'm wondering about the textual distinction between powers and just these verbs. So uh, there's a lot of these clauses that say the President shall have power to do something and a bunch of other clauses say the pro- President shall do it. Pre- Commander-in-Chief is President shall be. That's different. And I'm wondering if there's an analogy between your view of Article 2 and the Amar Pasha view of Article 3, which says all cases, all cases, all cases, that's uh, uh, indefeasible, but the controver- six kind of controversies, that is defeasible, is there... A similar thing going on in both articles. Okay, with that, I will only cite my dictatorial role and uh, thank uh, Michael, Cy, thank and all of you for a very good discussion.